That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirshner. In this long-form weekend podcast, Glenn discusses legal reform and the legal recap of the week. First up, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is under fire after accepting luxury gifts and real estate from a billionaire GOP donor. The Senate Judiciary Committee is now taking steps towards accountability by setting a hearing to look at an ethical code of conduct for the Supreme Court. Will Chief Justice Roberts appear? Here's Glenn. Welcome to the weekend edition of Justice Matters. On the weekends, we try to air things out a bit, talk about the legal developments of the week, and then turn our attention to some topic of reform, reforming our government, reforming our criminal justice system, just, you know, reforming this damn place to try to make it a little bit better, a little bit more fair, a little bit more decent, more kind, more caring, more empathetic, a little more just for everyone, not, not just the powerful, not just the influential, the connected, the rich, wealthy, white men. It wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice, friends, if, if we could give everyone a fair shake? Doesn't sound like too much to ask, does it? It sounds like a country in which I'd like to live. And I think we can get there. I believe we can get there. You know, if I didn't think we could get there to a better place, to a better country, I'd probably just get the hell out of Dodge, to be honest. But I think the older I get, the older we get, you know, we have to face up to reality that we're going to be leaving an America for our kids, for our grandkids, for your kids, for your grandkids, for our friends, our neighbors, our partners, our loved ones, for the people who mean something to us. And I am really not interested in leaving everyone a dictatorship or an autocracy. I'm really not interested in leaving a country where people are forever inundated with the sounds of gunshots, you know, where gunshots fill the air every day, everywhere, where people get shot for mistakenly ringing doorbells, mistakenly pulling into someone's driveway, trying to make a U-turn, mistakenly walking up to the wrong car in a parking lot. I'm not interested in leaving for future generations a place where minorities are relegated to second-class citizens, a place where women are relegated to second-class citizens, a place where pretty much everybody, other than the influential, connected, powerful, wealthy white men, are relegated to second-class citizens. That's not my America. It's not your America. 
Okay, friends, I feel like I'm already off track. <laughs> you know, my mental train does seem to jump off the tracks every now and then, especially when I'm in stream of consciousness mode, which, you know, truth be told, is pretty much all the time. You know, it's funny, I've talked before about how I find my hope and my optimism every week in a classroom at George Washington University where I have the pleasure and the privilege and the honor of teaching 50 plus undergraduate criminal justice students every week. And the one thing that they, my students, are painfully aware of is that eh, Professor Kirshner tends to get off topic sometimes, like when he tells war stories about his 30 years in the trenches of the criminal justice system, you know, in courts, both military and civilian, both trial and appellate, both federal and local. And the one thing I always promise my students is that each war story I tell will be related to the teaching topic of the day and will actually have a teaching purpose. I'm not just this old prosecutor spouting off war stories about his wins and his losses and his draws. And this week, friends, I want to talk about criminal justice reform and specifically two aspects of criminal justice reform because this past Thursday I was in federal court here in Washington, D.C. to attend another hearing in Judge Reggie Walton's reentry court. Each semester, my criminal justice students and I head from the GW campus across town to the federal courthouse and we sit in on what I believe is the future of probation and parole and court supervision. So let me put it this way. We need to be determined to make this the future of probation, parole, and supervised release because in many ways, Judge Walton and his reentry court program have turned probation, parole, and supervised release on its head in the best possible way. And that's one of the topics I wanna take up when we move from the legal recap portion of today's chat to the reform portion of today's chat. But first, let's start with a legal recap of what was a pretty wild week on the legal front. And we have to start with compromise at the Supreme Court, or maybe I should say a compromised Supreme Court. You know, in a story that would be rejected in Hollywood, if some screenwriter offered it up to a movie producer, it would be rejected because it's just beyond belief. It's too incredible. It's too absurd. You know, you'd have to suspend every shred of reality to believe that a Supreme Court justice could be this compromised. But enter Clarence Thomas. ProPublica has done a series of articles exposing the compromised tenure of Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. It turns out a hard right Republican billionaire mega donor named Harlan Crow has been lavishing millions and millions of dollars of 
what I call in-kind contributions, luxury yacht excursions, private jet outings, $5,000 bottles of wine on Clarence Thomas and his insurrectionist wife, Ginny Thomas. Not only does he contribute hundreds of thousands of dollars in lavish gifts and perks and excursions, but Harlan Crow also funds one of Jenny Thomas's organizations. I think it's a Tea Party organization. He provides hundreds of thousands of dollars to that organization, and then that organization turns around and gives Ginny 120 grand a year. And that, my friends, is a corrupt pass-through. That is nothing more than politically laundering money to put it in the pockets of Clarence and Ginny Thomas. And on top of that, we learn that Harlan Crow, I'm sure out of the goodness of his heart, right, not seeking to influence Judge Thomas in his legal rulings, well, Harlan Crow bought Clarence Thomas's mother's house and two other properties belonging to the Thomas family, dumped tens of thousands of dollars of improvements into Clarence Thomas's mother's house to, you know, improve the quality of her life significantly. And then it looks like Harlan Crow let her live there rent-free, putting money into the pocket of Clarence Thomas's mother. Oh, and by the way, all of the Republican positions and initiatives and causes that Harlan Crow supports, when those positions and initiatives and causes become legal cases and make their way up to the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas rules in favor of Harlan Crow's positions and initiatives each and every time compromised at the Supreme Court, obvious compromise, transparent compromise, unrepentant compromise, gleeful compromise, greedy compromise. Thy name is Clarence Thomas. The only question we can ask now is, what are we going to do about it? Because Clarence Thomas violated federal law by either omitting from or making false entries on his public financial disclosure forms. So what are we going to do about it? Department of Justice. How about investigate Clarence Thomas for his apparent, indeed obvious, violations of law? You know, DOJ damn well better because we have to stop ignoring the crimes of the ruling class criminals if we care one whit about ethics in government, if we care one whit about a Supreme Court free of compromise, the Department of Justice must investigate and hold Clarence Thomas accountable. I know Congress, the Senate Judiciary Committee, seems to be taking some steps in the direction of accountability. Senator Whitehouse is proposing an ethical code of conduct for the Supreme Court. Perish the thought that the Supreme Court should operate 
ethically in a conflict-free manner. Perish the thought the Supreme Court should be subject to an ethical code of conduct to, you know, remain compromise-free. And I know Senator Dick Durbin has invited, you know, like it's a garden party or a cotillion, has invited Chief Justice Roberts to appear before the Judiciary Committee and please answer some questions about the compromise, about the ethical lapses at the Supreme Court. Well, you know what, friends? If I had to bet my $1, that's my betting limit. I'm not a high roller. If I had to bet a buck, I would bet Chief Justice Roberts will politely decline the invitation. And then I hope to hell, Senator Durbin subpoenas the Chief Justice. You know, can we at least take one glove off? Even if we're not going to take both gloves off, how about we remove just one glove? You know, my friend Stephen Van Zant. no, I'm not just name dropping. Okay, I'm name dropping a little. My friend Stephen Van Zant. That is Bruce Springsteen's ride or die lead guitarist for the last 50 years. He continues to pose a really good question. He says, and I'm going to quote him, where are all the tough good guys? I'm going to expand that to the tough good gals. You know, it seems like we have plenty of tough bad guys. They're not really tough, right? They're actually just loud and obnoxious and hateful and yammering. Yes, I'm talking about Jim Jordan and Ron DeSantis and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, I, I call everybody guys because that's a Jersey thing. I should say guys and gals. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Donald Trump. You know, yeah, they're, um, they're sad, they're weak, they're pathetic, they're scared, they're power hungry, they're despicable. You know, they're not really tough guys or gals. But Stephen always says, you know, where are all the tough guys? Why aren't we fighting like hell to protect people, to promote equal rights, to beat back the tide of autocracy and dictatorship? You know, being kind, fighting for decency, fighting for empathy, fighting for inclusivity is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. You know, and damn it, we need more tough good guys and tough good gals to combat the indecency and the prejudice and the xenophobia and the misogyny and the hate and the compromise, the compromise at the Supreme Court. Coming up next, Fox News has agreed to pay one of the largest defamation settlements in history. But, Glenn explains, more lawsuits are coming. This is Justice Matters. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? 
Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The Dominion defamation suit against Fox News has been settled, but Smartmatic Voting Systems has also sued them for even more. Will Fox settle with them as well? Here's Glenn. All right, friends, let's turn to the next legal topic, the Dominion Voting Systems case in which Dominion took Fox News to the cleaners. And if anybody needs to be taken to the cleaners... So you probably saw that on the first day of trial, just as the parties were preparing to give their opening statements, right? That is the defamation trial that Dominion Voting Systems brought against Fox for Fox's intentional defamatory lies, not to mention democracy-busting lies that Fox told about the 2020 election. On the first day of trial, Fox folded like a cheap lawn chair agreeing to pay more than three quarters of a billion dollars to Dominion for the defamatory lies Fox hosts told, Fox anchors told, Fox guests told to the American people about the 2020 presidential election. And with this three quarters of a billion dollar settlement, friends, as Al Pacino would say in the movie Scent of a Woman, we're just getting warmed up. I really wish I could do impressions. But we're just getting warmed up because there are more lawsuits to come, right? Three quarters of a billion dollars is a good start. And I am hoping that, frankly, this is the beginning of the end for Fox financially because the next lawsuit on deck is the Smartmatic lawsuit against Fox which Fox will also settle, I strongly suspect. You know, they have shown that they have no appetite to go to trial because they know they were telling lies. They were caught telling lies, including in writing when guys like Tucker Carlson would write, Sidney Powell is lying, and then Fox would put Sidney Powell on air to tell those lies. Fox ain't going to trial against anybody. And think about this. Dominion sued Fox for $1.6 billion, and Fox settled for about half of that, more than three-quarters of a billion dollars. Smartmatic has sued Fox for $2.7 billion. So if my math is right and things stay the course, well, then Smartmatic is probably in line to get about $1.3 or $1.4 billion out of Fox when Fox settles that suit. I mean, how many billion-dollar settlements can Fox absorb without going belly up? We're about to find out. And you know what, friends? These lawsuits, these defamation suits, are really, really important and consequential and good for our democracy because they're not only exposing Fox's lies, 
But, you know, they're also doing significant damage and perhaps fatal damage to the Fox organization, and that's a good thing for America. If lying, disinformation, and propaganda outlets can be put out of business, you know, that is a good thing for our democracy. You know, because justice matters. All right, friends, last legal recap story. I've got to touch on this one. As you all probably know, New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg filed a lawsuit to stop Republican Representative Jim Jordan from interfering in Alvin Bragg's criminal prosecution of Donald Trump. A grand jury indicted Trump for 34 felony crimes in violation of New York state law, and ever since that indictment was handed down, Jim Jordan has been trying to interfere in that case. He's been trying to intimidate Alvin Bragg. He's been trying to smear the Manhattan District Attorney's office. And one of the things Jordan has done in his quest to protect Donald Trump, keep him out of hot water, is he subpoenaed Mark Pomerantz. Pomerantz was one of the prosecutors that had been working on the criminal investigation of Donald Trump's New York State crimes. And Jim Jordan subpoenaed Pomerantz to testify before the House Judiciary Committee about the criminal investigation of Donald Trump. Now that would be an interference, indeed an unconstitutional interference by Jim Jordan, by the federal government in a state court criminal case. So Alvin Bragg, New York District Attorney, used the legal system to try to put a stop to it. Filed suit, Alvin Bragg did, and it ended up in the lap of a Trump-appointed judge named Mary Kay Viscochiel. Now, you might ask, what were Judge Viscochiel's qualifications to be a federal court judge with life tenure appointed by Donald Trump? Why did Trump pick her? Well, her background is listed as a general commercial litigator for 33 years in New York City. That's interesting. You know, my first question, and I'm hoping it's a question that many investigative journalists are asking themselves right about now, is did Mary Kay Viscochiel have any interaction at all with Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, Trump businesses, Trump properties, Trump contracts in her 33 years as a general commercial litigator in New York City. I, for one, would find very interesting and enlightening the answer to that question. But even setting that aside, Judge Viscochiel just handed down her opinion, siding with Jim Jordan, denying District Attorney Alvin Bragg's request to put a stop to Jim Jordan's obstruction. And friends, can I read you just the first paragraph of Judge Viscochiel's order? Quote, the request by the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg for a temporary restraining order enjoining enforcement of the subpoena issued to Mark Pomerantz 
by the Committee on the Judiciary of the House of Representatives, chaired by Congressman Jim Jordan, is denied. The subpoena was issued with a valid legislative purpose in connection with the broad and indispensable congressional power to conduct investigations. It is not the role of the federal judiciary to dictate what legislation Congress may consider or how it should conduct its deliberations in that connection. Mr. Pomerantz must appear for the congressional deposition. No one is above the law. Oh, really, Judge Viscochiel? No one is above the law? That's your catchphrase? That's your tagline for your opening salvo? Excuse me, Judge, but Jim Jordan is above the law. Jim Jordan, the very person who issued the subpoena to Mark Pomerantz, is above the law because Jordan criminally defied a congressional subpoena. Jim Jordan committed the crime of contempt of Congress rather than complying with a congressional subpoena he received. The exact same kind of congressional subpoena that Jim Jordan, who's above the law, now serves on Pomerantz. So you can just stop your posturing, Judge, because the person you just sided with is above the law. I urge you all to read Judge Viscochiel's opinion because, friends, it reads like it was drafted by Jim Jordan's public relations person coupled with Donald Trump's criminal defense attorneys. You know, the language that she uses in her order is so Trumpian. It's so unbefitting a federal judge. Page after page after page, she mocks and derides Alvin Bragg and Mark Pomerantz, and she props up Jim Jordan, and she actually props up Donald Trump's candidacy for president. It's disgusting. You know, notwithstanding all of that, let me be clear, I actually think her ultimate legal ruling is supportable. It's very hard for a federal court to invalidate a congressional subpoena. So I actually don't take exception with her ultimate ruling, and I've got to call things the way I see them legally. What I take exception with is her language and her obvious hypocrisy. No one is above the law, yet the person she sided with, Jim Jordan, is in fact above the law because he was never held accountable for criminally violating a congressional subpoena. Let me just finish this part of the recap with a few things that Judge Viscochiel said in her order. Things like this, quote, the first 35 pages of Alvin Bragg's complaint have little to do with the subpoena and are nothing short of a public relations tirade against the former president and the current presidential candidate, Donald Trump. The judge expressly criticized and even mocked Bragg and Pomerantz, saying, quote, Bragg and Pomerantz are not entitled to unilaterally narrow the universe of acceptable inquiry 
to the information and mental impressions that Pomerantz decided to sell in the pages of his book. The judge writes, the court is unmoved by Bragg's purported concern at the prospect of injecting partisan passions into a forum where they do not belong. In other words, this lawsuit, by bringing this action, Bragg is engaging in precisely the type of political theater he claims to fear. The judge says Bragg's throw everything at the wall approach to privilege is unpersuasive. The judge mocks, quote, Bragg's seemingly endless string of what ifs. And in her conclusion, she says something that just kind of knocked the justice wind right out of me. She says, quote, this court will retain jurisdiction over this dispute and any ancillary claims arising out of the inquiry by the House Judiciary Committee relating to the use of federal funds in a manner that may influence the 2024 presidential election. Your friends, it sounds like Judge Viscochiel has anointed herself not only Donald Trump's protector, but one of his campaign managers. Well, you know what? Judge Viscochiel can say that she will be retaining jurisdiction over this dispute, but guess what? She's already been deprived of jurisdiction over this dispute by virtue of an appeal being filed. When an appeal is filed and accepted by the appellate court, the trial court judge, that would be Judge Viscochiel, is deprived of jurisdiction. And the Second Circuit Court of Appeals has already put a stay, a temporary hold, on Judge Viscochiel's opinion to see if they are going to take up Alvin Bragg's appeal of her decision. It's very strange the way this opinion reads, and as I said, it feels like it was drafted by Jim Jordan's public relations person together with Donald Trump's criminal defense attorney. Coming up, fear and panic about rampant crime in the U.S. is being stoked by right-wing media, and gun violence is at an epic level. How can we change the laws to curb the number one problem in the U.S.? This is Justice Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. With recent mass shootings becoming more frequent and MAGA extremists shooting random people they feel are a threat, is there something President Biden can do to tamp down on the gun craziness? Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, let's talk reform. 
Today I want to take up two aspects of criminal justice reform. Now, having been a, a federal prosecutor for 30 years, having handled countless cases, I got an up-close-and-personal view from inside the criminal justice system, and I think I have a, a pretty full appreciation of what needs to be fixed, what's broken, what doesn't work well. And that's why when I retired from the Department of Justice in 2018, I started to take on criminal justice reform projects, trying to put to good use what I learned during those 30 years, right? Trying to make the system better, more right, more fair, more just, more equal for everyone. You know, just have a system that makes some damn sense. Do things better. Stop replicating the failures of the past. Learn from our mistakes. Help people succeed rather than set them up for failure. And in the process, save the taxpayers some money. You know, friends, all of that is possible, likely even, if we set our minds to it. So I want to take on two specific aspects of criminal justice reform today. One is on the front end and one is on the back end. So the front end is what we call the intake process. What does that mean? Well, once an arrest is made, that arrest is promptly brought to the prosecutor's office and the prosecutor has a decision to make. Do I put that person into the system or do I kick them to the street? Put them in the system, kick them to the street. Put them in the system, kick them to the street. It's a binary choice. It's one or the other and it's mindless and it's counterproductive and it's stupid. It's stupid that prosecutors only have two choices. And I want to talk about how we can change that approach to intake. And then we're going to go to the back end and we're going to talk about how we can do re-entry better, more efficiently, more cost effectively. And when I say re-entry, of course I mean that when somebody transitions from having served a prison sentence and they're now transitioning back into the community. You know, whether you call it probation or parole or supervised release, which is what it's called in the federal system, supervised release. How can we do reentry better? How can we set people up for success rather than failure? Let's not just keep doing it mindlessly, foolishly, stupidly, and at increased expense to taxpayers. And I'm going to be talking about this remarkable project and program called Judge Reggie Walton's Reentry Court, which does it differently and better and is having great success and is saving the taxpayers money. You know, I've been going to Judge Walton's Reentry Court hearings for years now, since pre-COVID, and I was there again this past week with my George Washington University criminal justice students and I want to share my experiences attending court and talk about why this reform, reentry reform, can be done and should be done and frankly must be done. But can I spend just a few minutes before turning specifically to criminal justice reform to comment on what we have seen recently? 
We've seen a 16-year-old African-American boy ringing the wrong doorbell, getting shot. We've seen a 20-year-old pregnant woman pulling in to the wrong driveway and making a U-turn, getting shot. We saw a group of cheerleaders after practice mistakenly walking up to the wrong car in a parking lot, getting shot. President Biden, we have a national emergency on our hands. Uncontrolled fear plus unrestrained hate plus a country awash in guns equals a national emergency. Please do something. Start signing executive orders all day, every day. Sign them until your hand cramps up. Sign executive orders limiting, restricting, or outright banning everything you can think of to limit or restrict or ban. Get your smart lawyers, you've got thousands and thousands of them at your disposal in federal service. Get your smart lawyers to come up with common sense executive orders that we think have a chance of passing constitutional muster and damn it, sign them. One example, ban extended clips, high capacity magazines. Those are the big, long ammunition magazines that you see extending out of the bottom of the automatic and semi-automatic weapons like AR-15s. If those clips or those magazines are curved, we call them banana clips. You know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says extended clips, high capacity magazines enjoy constitutional protection. Ban them. At least make aspiring mass murderers have to reload. Ban them and then go into court and fight for the American people. Fight to persuade judges that this ban is constitutional, banning high-capacity magazines. And if the court disagrees, the court will issue an opinion about why that executive order banning extended clips or high-capacity magazines, why that executive order steps a toe over the constitutional line, and then President Biden you retool, you rework, you redraft, and you sign a modified executive order, learning the lessons from the loss in court. And then next time, maybe the judges realize that the constitutional deficiency or infirmity of the first executive order has been fixed, has been remedied, and maybe this time the court affirms it. Right. You know, it took Donald Trump four tries to get his hateful Muslim ban pushed through the courts. You know, he successfully banned human beings from coming to our country because of the religion they practice. It took him four tries retooling executive orders to find enough hateful xenophobic Supreme Court justices to affirm his hateful Muslim ban. But he did it over and over and over and over again. He didn't give up because he's got that kind of hate that motivates him all day, every day. If Donald Trump can do that for evil, sign executive order after executive order, President Biden can do it for good. Signing executive order after executive order after executive order and then fighting in court to try to protect the American people. 
how is this not worth doing when young black boys are being shot for ringing doorbells? Coming up next, Glenn discusses criminal justice reform. Whether it's going into the prison system or coming out, there are big problems that need better options. So what can we do? This is Justice Matters. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Prosecutors don't have many options when they're faced with a decision on whether they should charge someone with a crime. Glenn explains that there have been some success stories with diversion programs that can lessen the incarceration rate and actually help offenders onto the right path. Okay, let's talk about reforming the criminal justice system, and let's start by tackling the need to reform the intake process. That is, what prosecutors do, what prosecutors are able to do at the very first moment after an arrest. After an arrest is made, that arrest, the police paperwork, that case is presented to the prosecutor for the prosecutor to make a decision. Do I prosecute or do I decline to prosecute? Do I put him in the system? Do I kick him to the street? In DC, we call that the papering decision. If you decide to bring a charge, it's called papering a case. If you decline to bring a charge, it's called no papering a case. These are decisions I made thousands and thousands of times in my decades at the DC US Attorney's Office. So what it boils down to is you only have two choices during the intake process. Put them in the system, kick them to the street. It's a binary choice and it's a stupid way to do business. Why do I say that? Well, you know, having performed this duty, this screening duty, this intake duty more times than I can ever count, you know, the police would make maybe 100, 150 lockups a day, and we, the screeners at the U.S. Attorney's Office, would evaluate each and every case to try to figure out what to do, paper it, no paper it, put them in the system, kick them to the street. And, you know, what we know, and we know it intuitively when we're involved in this process, and we know it based on our experience, is that so much of the crime that's committed involves things like homelessness, joblessness, poverty, mental health problems, addiction problems, education problems. And yet, our only two options at the moment of intake are put them in the system, kick them to the street. 
Our criminal justice system entrusts the decision to prosecutors whether to charge somebody or decline to charge somebody. It is an enormously weighty and consequential decision. Because if you decide to put them in the system, the person who was just arrested, you are inserting them into the machinery of government that may result in them losing their liberty, going to jail, going to prison, going to a confinement facility. Friends, that is an enormous responsibility, and it represents an enormous power over the life of a fellow human being. For a prosecutor to be in that position, to make that decision, given that society entrusts prosecutors to make that weighty decision, why don't we give prosecutors more than just those two options, put them in the system, kick them to the street? Because, think about this, if you put them in the system, you are very likely putting that person on a path that may not guarantee failure, but it will make success immeasurably more difficult for that person. If you kick that person to the street with that person having committed a crime and you provide no additional tools or services or resources or assistance, you're probably similarly guaranteeing that person will continue to commit crime, will fail. So that binary choice that prosecutors have, put them in the system, kick them to the street, it's not a win-win, it's a lose-lose, and yet, foolishly, we do it, mindlessly, we do it repeatedly, we do it knowing that we're making almost nothing better and we're very likely making matters worse. Now, let me hasten to add, friends, that there is also a victim in each case in which there's an arrest. And I'm not ignoring or downplaying the importance of justice for victims. Victims' rights are critically important at every stage, including intake, and I've spent my career, and even since my retirement, fighting not only for justice reform, but fighting for victims' rights. But what I wanna focus on today, without doing insult to the victims, is doing intake smarter. Because we can do it smarter if it's not just a binary choice. If prosecutors actually had the opportunity to decide what to do in lieu of just bringing charges or declining to bring charges. If there were programs by which we could offer the arrestee other options right then, right there, at the time of arrest, in the immediate aftermath of an arrest, options of participating in something designed to address the circumstance or circumstances that led them to commit the crime and get arrested in the first place, whether it was a poverty issue or a homelessness issue or a joblessness issue or a mental health issue or an addiction issue or an education issue or some combination thereof, if at the earliest moment, the moment of intake, prosecutors could have the option, the opportunity to do something other than put them in the system or kick them to the street, maybe get them the help that they need to 
avoid having to commit crimes, I can tell you, friends, we would see more successes and less failures. We would certainly see less chronic offenders, fewer repeat offenders. And to accomplish this, we can marshal the services of the court system, the defense bar, the prosecutor's office, the city government in DC, for example, the federal government, the business community, the nonprofit community. You can marshal resources to pull all of these different factions together to provide assistance that people need to avoid finding themselves at intake, facing only two choices, put them in the system, kick them to the street. And friends, the reason I know we can pull these resources together to offer those kinds of alternatives to that binary choice is because we're doing it. We're doing it on the back end as part of Judge Reggie Walton's reentry court. And I wanna move on to that topic now, but before I get there, let me acknowledge that there are some programs like the ones I'm describing Right? Not precisely like the ones I'm describing, but we do have things called diversion programs where a person after they're arrested, after they're charged, after they're in the system and they have a case that may you know, set them on the path to a period of incarceration in the event of a conviction, then we can meet with their attorney and maybe put them in a diversion program, have them sign what's called a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement whereby if they get some services and they stay out of trouble then maybe eventually their case will be dismissed well that's not good enough we have to back all of this up to the moment of arrest and intake the immediate aftermath of the arrest when we can change the system change the paradigm of what prosecutors can do at that moment, what options they have available to them to help people in that moment, rather than just that binary choice. Put them in the system, kick them to the street. Okay, friends, let's finish up. I feel like I've been going on for quite some time. You get the sense that I can talk forever about stuff that I feel strongly about. I don't wanna overstay my welcome. So we're gonna keep this final segment about reform short, but I'm gonna expand on it in the future. I wanna talk a little bit about how the criminal justice system can and is doing re-entry better, specifically in federal court here in Washington, D.C. Judge Reggie Walton is presiding over something called re-entry court. Now, re-entry court is a program where people who finish serving their sentence of incarceration and are put on supervised release. Different jurisdictions call it different things, probation, parole. In the federal system, it's called supervised release or court supervision. Let me tell you, friends, in my experience, what happens when somebody is on probation or supervised release is they come before a judge, and that judge says something like, Mr. Defendant, you better not get in trouble again 
no rearrests, no positive drug tests. I'm ordering you to secure and or maintain employment. I'm ordering you to get a GED if you don't have a high school degree. I'm ordering you to participate in anger management programs and parenting skills programs and mental health programs and addiction programs. I'm ordering you to do this, that, and the other thing. And if you screw up, you're going back in. Do you understand me, young man? No, not every judge says it that way or puts all those conditions on somebody that they are supervising. But friends, what I just ran through is not that much of an overstatement. You know, what I've seen the system do is set people up for failure when they try to transition from incarceration back into the community. Judge Reggie Walton has been a judge for more than 40 years in the courts of Washington, D.C., first in federal court, then in local court. Before that, back in the 70s, he was a federal prosecutor at my former office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. Judge Walton is the one, the name may be familiar to you, he's the one who presided over the litigation surrounding the Mueller report, and Judge Walton is the one who found who ruled that Bill Barr lied about the Mueller report to the American people. I happen to have enormous respect for Judge Walton. And Judge Walton saw that the system didn't do court supervision well or effectively, and he decided to change that. I've been attending Judge Walton's re-entry court since before COVID. During COVID, you could only attend it via Zoom, which I also did. And it's been a few years now. I've actually watched various groups of former inmates as they work their way to transitioning successfully back into the community. And this past Thursday, I again attended a re-entry court hearing together with my criminal justice students from George Washington University. And we watched the judges preside. And there are actually two judges that preside simultaneously. They both sit up there on the bench and they both interact with the folks who are in the program. And those two judges are Judge Walton and the other is Judge Zia Faruqi, who is a wonderful jurist. And the reentry court program involves marshalling all of the forces of all of the stakeholders to try to provide support in every conceivable way, to give these former inmates an opportunity to successfully transition back into the community, to successfully complete their period of court supervision. And as I mentioned before, the stakeholders are groups that include the Federal Probation Office, the Federal Public Defender Service, the federal prosecutors, that is the DC US Attorney's Office, uh, the many agencies of the DC city government, federal agencies, nonprofit organizations, the business community in DC, and others. And there are education programs, there's housing assistance, there's addiction programs, there's mental health programs, there are employment programs. All of these groups and all of these resources are brought to bear on the challenge of helping people successfully re-enter society after incarceration. And friends, they have a 70% success rate. That is a success. You know, the recidivism rate in some jurisdictions can approach 
60%, 70% or more. They have a 70% success rate. And I promise I'm going to talk more and in far more detail in the future about this reentry court program because it is a topic that deserves so much time and attention. And I want to talk specifically about some of what I saw. I met many of the folks who went through this program, transitioned from incarceration back into society, back into the community, and you know, watching them, talking with them is inspirational because they come to view the criminal justice system in a very different way. I've seen grown men, mostly men in the program, there are some women who participate in the program, I've seen these men weep openly and say things like, I can't believe there are judges here that care about me, that want to help me, that want me to succeed when I have to go from prison back into the community. I can't believe there are probation officers and prosecutors. And of course, defense attorneys are always fighting for the clients, but there are government agencies and nonprofit and business organizations who want to help me. You can see the, the turnaround in people. You can see the societal value in expanding the way the community views the criminal justice system not just this big ugly monster that wants to lock everybody up, but a system that can help and support and encourage and inspire and prop up people. I'm telling you, friends, it's inspirational. I wanna talk more about the nuts and bolts of it in the future, but I'm gonna leave you with this. I mentioned previously that you know I have the great fortune to teach 50 plus criminal justice students, undergraduate students every semester, and they really are where I turn for my hope and my optimism every week. So what I did was I asked them to just write me a short paragraph about what they saw when we attended reentry court on Thursday. Just whatever their main takeaway was, just shoot me a paragraph because I want to see uh, how it was received, what the students' perceptions were of what they saw in reentry court. So I'm just going to read a couple of random samples of what the students said about what we just experienced on Thursday in Judge Reggie Walton's reentry court. And we're going to finish up with that. This from one student. I really enjoyed visiting reentry court. I've never seen anything like that in action before. It was great to see all parties of the judicial process working together and rooting for the individual to succeed in the program. Watching the two judges speak so positively to each person and sincerely trying to motivate them to achieve their goals and stay on track within the program contrasted the stern and unemotional judges I see in trial recordings or I hear about in classes or in the media it was also great to see that the program was working for the most part and the genuine concern and willingness to help each person from the judges. This from another student. Here are my thoughts on the reentry court. This showing of the reentry court has been the most positive view of the criminal justice system I have seen in a while. The two judges are very supportive of each and every participant that came before them 
and were interested in each person's story and what they were doing with their jobs and their living situation. I like how even though some of them may have had issues with marijuana, they like to give them the benefit of the doubt and still support their transition out of jail. This approach seems to really help and knowing that someone in the criminal justice system is supporting prior convicts and showing them that they are supportive must mean so much to each person. Helping with jobs, work training, and funds for apartments are all great things for these people and are all ways to reduce recidivism rates. I think this program is beneficial and I would like to see the program expanded in DC and maybe in other cities that may not offer this type of service already. I don't know, friends. Hope, optimism for doing this thing we call justice just a little bit better. You know, because justice matters. Friends, thank you for joining me on this weekend long form Justice Matters audio podcast. If you want to know where else you can find me, you can find me on other platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. On those platforms, I'm Glenn Kirshner 2, the number 2. My YouTube channel is Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. I post a, a legal analysis video every day, seven days a week. So if you find my YouTube channel, Justice Matters, please feel free to subscribe. It's always free to subscribe. And we're also over on Patreon, and that's a platform where if you want to more formally support our all-volunteer efforts, our mission, our content, you can go over to patreon.com. You can sign up to become a patron. And if you do, I'll send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. And of course, each weekend you can find me right here on my Justice Matters audio podcast. We also post audio podcast episodes throughout the week with the legal analysis commentary. So I hope you will also look for us, as they say, wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, friends, please stay safe. Please stay tuned. And I look forward to talking with you all again soon.